days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Thank you, Doc. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. It had a social impact. I mean, we got the Vietnam Memorial Wall built in Washington, D.C. Uh, we got a presidential citation for the Navajo Code Talkers. We were the first to do the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. And we got the Missing Children's Act passed for John Walsh. That's the power of the show. We used to get 20,000 pieces of mail a week. And he said, the happiest people in the world are those people who look forward to getting up the next day to either do something they love or to be with somebody they love. The gods give you a life. They do not give you a purpose. Only you can give you a purpose. And my purpose was to be a storyteller. I'm proud to share with you Tetragen, which helps you transition to a healthier, happier, and thinner you without cravings or side effects. Our metabolic hormones are the underlying problem that doom every diet and exercise program to fail. They control our metabolism, cravings, how much we eat to feel satiated, blood sugar levels, and even our energy levels. Tetragen is formulated with four clinically proven patented ingredients that help rebalance your metabolic hormones in roughly 15 to 20 days, depending on the amount of weight you want to lose. Once your metabolic hormones are rebalanced, you'll be on the path to long-term sustainable weight loss because Tetragen is the first in the world which is scientifically formulated with four clinically proven and patented active ingredients to help you reach your targeted weight in two distinct phases. Phase one, we balance your metabolic hormones, and phase two, accelerate fat loss. The best part is that Tetragen comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee. So what do you have to lose besides weight? Learn more with the link below. And we talked for about a half an hour. He was the most wonderful, literate, funny conversationalist, and he said to me, Johnny says, you know, it's 1970 and seven years after the murder of John Kennedy, our only peace president. That's how we always referred to him as our only peace president. He said, you know, only 81 percent, according to Harris polls, believe that Oswald acted alone or did it at all. And I said, well, Mr. Garrison, if that's the case and everybody knows that, why don't we have trials and stuff? He said, well, you haven't heard the second question on the poll. And what does this say about us? And the second question on the poll by Harris and Gallup was, would you like to see a deeper investigation that involved the investigation also of the FBI and the CIA? And he said, and gets what Americans said. Only 21% had the courage to say yes. What does that say about us? And I said, and I don't know where it came from, Sarah, I said, Mr. Garrison, I'll tell you what it says to me. 
I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or in the bedroom or the back alley, but don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, but today, I bet you if you did that same Gallic poll today, it would be different. Well, the truth is, sadly, it's now down to about 59% don't believe that Oswald did it. Really? Yes, it's dreadful. It's but how much... many people would like to see the CIA and FBI investigated, but that number went up? I'm sure, there's probably no question that number went up. But if you look, if you look on uh, the Internet, you will find people screaming at Donald Trump. And they're screaming at Donald Trump, who publicly said he would take the word of the prime minister or the president of North Korea over the CIA. And... You know, it's probably true. The CIA <laughs> okay? Now, what happened? Oh. People are calling Donald Trump a traitor for questioning our CIA, who are known murderers. I mean, in the documentary film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, you see proof from a leading CIA chief of Western Hemisphere, David Attlee Phillips, bragging about how they murdered Mossadegh in Iran, a democratically elected socialist who nationalized British petroleum. So they murdered him. They did it to Allende in Chile. Now you have this nonsense about Iran. Since the end of the Second World War, Iran hasn't invaded anybody. We've invaded 38 countries. Yeah, I know. But people believe it. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know how, it's because of everything you're talking about with the fairness doctrine and also the new law that Obama put through that lets, and the Congress voted on, that lets them do propaganda legally against the American people. Exactly. Now, in my book, you know, I wanted to talk to you for this hour about my book, which, and I might, might say, in 1978, when I was unemployed, and I was starting to develop the first pilot for real people. I was developing it with a company owned by Danny Arnold, who was a co-creator, Barney Miller. I've got wonderful stories to tell you about that. And I wanted my Byron and my first co-host to be Richard Pryor. And we presented to the ABC and a guy named Lou Ehrlich, who was head of programming at ABC, leaned over the counter and said, that nigger is never getting on this network. Oh, I mean, I, I was totally shocked. It's all in the book. So anyway, they pat, they pat, they passed on it, and I told them that Richard Pryor would become one of the biggest performers in America because he could put five thousand people unknown into theater seats. Now he was in he was in jail at the time. Lou Ehrlich said this because he'd done a special at NBC. And one of the censors cut out his favorite bit, and he punched him. And also, and also, the IRS was waiting to arrest him because he wasn't paying his taxes. But he and I were the closest of friends, and the stories about it are in the book, and some of them are absolutely hilarious. So, but what I would like to tell you one sad, sad but meaningful story to me about Cesar Chavez. Do you mind? No, go ahead. I'm very interested. I've been waiting for that one. Okay. Okay. Now, 
well, there were massive demonstrations still, even though even after we got the show on the air as a sop to the FCC, uh, there were still massive demonstrations in Los Angeles over police brutality and and the problems that Chicanos were having in Los Angeles. And there were two young men who were lead, leading the movement at the time. They were in their middle to late 20s. Gonzalo Javier and Rosalia Munoz. How after 60 odd years can I can remember their names? But I remember seeing them uh, being interviewed. And so I decided to put them on the air and I put them on the morning show. I was the only one who brought attention to the fact that there was going to be a Chicano moratorium march in Los Angeles, 20,000 people. The only other person who reported it was a brilliant Mexican reporter for the LA Times named Ruben Salazar, brilliant writer, the most prominent Chicano voice in America at the time in the Los Angeles Times. So anyway, these riots take place. And of course, what happens it's peaceful at first, but then who knows whether it's agent provocateurs or upset Chicanos, et cetera. But the riots start, and they're in massive riots, and the cops come in, and they start firing tear gas canisters into the crowd and rubber bullets. One of the canisters hits Ruben Salazar in the head and kills him on the mm. spot. That stopped the riot because everybody was so shocked at this man lying on the sidewalk. They were too angry to go after the cops when they should have gone after the cops. Okay, but they didn't, so it stopped. Anyway, a fellow named Corky Gonzalez was arrested as one of the provocateurs, and his main character witness is, was to be Cesar Chavez. So I'm gonna put that on pause a second while I'll tell you. When I started the AM show, John McMahon a man who should have never been in broadcasting was the general manager of the station. It was Brad Lockman who hired me. And so John McMahon is asking me how I'm gonna make this a successful show. Now remember, I'd never done this in my life, Sarah, but I knew what I liked because I saw Jack Parr and David Susskind and people who could do talk shows. And I said to him, we will go live. We will take phone calls into our guests. And he says, well, Los Angelinos are dumb. This isn't San Francisco. It's not an intellectual city. And I said, if you have an interesting, if you have an interesting guest, Mr. McMahon, I believe, uh, believe me, people will call in. I said, also, we're in the movie capital of the world, and I'm going to do. I'll be the first person in America to do movie reviews on the news. And he said, well, that's nonsense. People only care about television. I said, but we're in the town that makes these movies. He says, you're not doing it. Over mm. his objections, uh, over his objections, not only did I do it every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but Los Angeles Magazine was so impressed they hired me for ten years to do it as their as their film reviewer, which I which I did, and that's what ended me up on NBC. Now, well, now is that why he didn't like you? Because I know you guys had a hard relationship the whole time you were there, and he wouldn't publish your your clips. Oh, what a, that's what I'm getting to, because what happened at one point, when I had Ali on, and I had Reagan, the governor, on, and Jane Fonda with this fantastic exchange, he would never put the clips on the air, because at one point, what, before I'd done my first show, I said to him, now listen to this arrogance, 
I said, Mr. McMahon, I'm going to make Bill Bonds your 6 p.m. anchorman, the most popular anchorman in L.A. The most popular at the time was a guy named Jerry Dumphy. From the desert to the city, this is the CBS News with Jerry Dumphy. And he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, how do you propose to do that with a morning show? I said, with a morning show. I said, when you leave the house in the morning, you close your television set. When you come home at night, you just pull the plug back on. It's the same station. I will make the morning so show so popular, Bill B. Bonds will become your number one anchor man in L.A. And in four months, he was. Oh, that's now, great. So he hated the fact that I kept bucking heads with him. And thank God that Brad Lockman always supported me. Now comes the business with Cesar Chavez. And this is uh, it's such a sweet, sweet story. Cesar Chavez had become the most famous American because of Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy became a deep ally of Cesar Chavez and, and the workers' movement to organize and have a labor union. And it was all over the business of picking grapes. Anyway, he is called, as Corky Gonzalez, character witness. He calls our show. And he asks Brad Lockman if he could come on the show to be interviewed by John. And of course, Brad is jumping up and down. Oh my God, the most famous man in America, certainly. So anyway, Cesar shows up. He's wearing just a plaid shirt and jeans. He's just dressed like he just came off of the field. He was about my size. He had a round face, brown eyes, and brown hair, just the sweetest disposition. And he only came with a couple of his friends. But what came were 40 reporters from ABC and CBS and NBC. They came from all over. This is going to be a massive trial with the most famous man in America as Corky Gonzalez, character witness. So we do the interview for about 20 minutes. We're live. Now, the cameras are in front of me about eight feet away. And behind them, this army of reporters, including all the reporters from our station, and the news director and are all waiting because when I had Fonda on and Reagan and Ali on, what they would do, they wouldn't use clips from my show. McMahon would never use them. And he would never let me do the reviews on the news, even though the news news uh, news uh, uh, director wanted it. They would take the, guy, uh, the, the guests out and put them up against a brick wall and ask questions that they probably heard from me. And... I felt terrible about it. I had to hire a private publicist to let people know who my guests were because ABC wouldn't announce my guests. So anyway, he's sitting next to me to my right. And we're about three minutes away from the last of the interviews, and we have to take a break. Nobody can get close to us, and I click off the mics, and I turn to him, and I say, Mr. Chavez, I'm going to ask you a question, and I must tell you, I am totally ashamed of myself. I feel like an egomaniacal Hollywood wannabe star, but I just have to ask it for two reasons. One, I have to get even with somebody. And secondly, because it should be done. It should be done. And he just stared at me. He didn't ask me anything. And I said, can I continue? And he just stared at me. And I said, well, you know, you're making me feel worse. So I explained why management hated me, 
why they would never use clips of these great people that I had on and put it on the six or the seven o'clock local news. And I said, you know, you see all those people out there? They're gonna drag you up against a, a brick wall outside. They're gonna ask you questions they might not have thought of until they heard me ask it. And I said, you know, that breaks my heart, but you know, you deserve all the news that you can get over Corky's case, so I can understand that if you say no to what I'm about to ask. But when they come up and ask you, oh God, I almost cried for shame, Sarah, honest to God. I said, would you tell them you can't do it because you have a bad back from picking grapes? And he still never answered. He never said a word. He didn't smile. He didn't do anything. He just sort of stared at me. So anyway, the end of the interview comes. The red light goes off. And there's a huge rush. They push the cameras away. My seat is pushed away from him. And their bodies all over him, leaning into him and saying, Mr. Chavez, Newsweek was there, the New York Times, the Washington Post, everybody. And like the Pope, Mr. Chavez held up his hands with his palms facing them. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I would love to come out and talk to you, but I can't. I have a bad back from picking grapes. Oh. <laughs> So now were they all forced to air your clips then? They were forced to air my clips and the ratings almost doubled. Wow, that's a great story. I mean, and to this day, I almost cry thinking about it because he was the sweetest man in the world. He had such a gentle soul and I was so ashamed of myself. I mean, I'm embarrassed now even telling it. You know, so. <laughs> I can imagine, it's one of those Oh, it's one of those moments. What what an amazing man. What He understood what you were saying. He got it. Because people who are mistreated and are always treated like they're second, they understand that. And I can also tell you, Angel, the wonderful thing I like about the book, not only is it a great Canadian rags to American riches story, and how many times in a person's life can they hear, no, you can't do it, no, you can't do it. I heard it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and always ignored it. But most people don't. They take it personally and they stop. This is a book they must read. So if they want to learn about me, they go from page one to the last page. But the wonderful thing about the book, there are no regular chapters. They're all columns. It's like an assemblage of newspaper columns. And you can go, you can open the book almost anywhere. Let's say you're interested now in hearing the Jane Fonda story or one about Bob Hope or Johnny Carson or any of these famous people. There are these great stories. There is a magnificent five, five pages on remembering Lenny Bruce, the great classic sick comic that was murdered by the LA Police Department. And they put his picture on the front page of the L.A. Times lying naked with a needle in his arm saying he overdosed from drugs. It's drugs they murdered him with because they had to stop him from attacking the establishment. And then, and then you have Bill Hicks at 32, who could have been the greatest comic in America, ah, talking about murdering George Bush, for God's sake, over Iraq. And he dies of pancreatic cancer, a mystery at 32 years of age. He'd have been the biggest star in America. He, like Mark Lane, became famous in England. 
Rush the Judgment, Mark Lane's book, was never published in America. It was published in England with the help of Bertrand Russell. And it became so big, it had to be sold in the United States. That's where Bill Hicks made it. But let me tell you one cute story. Because I ended up at uh, uh, um, Danny Arnold's company, which, uh, do you remember the show Barney Miller? Yes. Okay, Barney Miller was one of the great classic American sitcoms, the kinds of which we will never see anymore, where people just talk to one another. And the story of how it stayed on the air is in, in the book. In the, uh, uh, Denny Arnold, the first co-creator co of the show, with a guy named Ted Flicker. Well, the first half of Barney Miller used to take place in Barney Miller's apartment, and he has a wife. And the second half would take place in the precinct, or once in a while would open with in the precinct, and the second half would always be at home in the apartment with the wife. And it was frankly a boring show, and it was going to be canceled. Well, my fun son's uh, godfather's name is Chris Hayward. Uh, he and Alan Burns created the Munsters, and their agent sold it as his own property to Screen Gems. And after a 10-year lawsuit, uh, Chris Hayward and Alan Burns got their million to millions of dollars back. But in any event, he was the producer of, of Barney Miller and my son's godfather. And he says, since it's wide, widely known they're going to cancel this show, Chris goes to Danny and says, Danny, listen, you remember the movie Detective Story with uh, Kirk Douglas? Yeah, Danny says, great story, great story. And Chris says, it's a 90-minute movie that takes place in a city precinct. Why don't we do the whole show in a precinct? And Danny says, nobody's going on television in their living room which wants to look at a seedy precinct in their living rooms, for God's sake. And Chris says, no, let me do a show. Danny says, no, no, it's over with, it's over with. So when word came it would be canceled after the 13th show, they had just done the 12th show. Everybody was packing up to leave, and Danny came to Chris, said, Chris, go ahead and write a script. I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. So Chris Hayward wrote a script, and in the script, everybody had to stay in the precinct because of a snowstorm in New York City. And quite by accident, uh, Richard, 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 I forget his name. He was the critic for Time Magazine, very famous critic for Time Magazine, Life magazine, you see his, uh, see his stuff all the time. Anyway, he, this Richard sees it, and he loves it. And he lights his rave review in the New York paper about the show. And ABC reads this review, and they think, well, maybe the show's not so, a dud anyway. So they re-option it for another 13 weeks, but it has to stay in the precinct. Oh. <laughs> Danny, now, listen to this. Danny Arnold so disbelieved that it would last another 13 weeks, he kept the actress who played Barney Miller's wife under contract for four years and only used her four times. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Well, I have a couple important questions to ask you before we wrap this up. First, I want to ask you, you were in Hollywood, obvious at the highest levels, and 
Did you see what we're seeing today uh, with the pattern of corruption that is like a, a, a door back and forth between politicians and the Hollywood elite like we're well, seeing today? No, we, we never we never saw that. It's all behind the, the scene. Uh, the most notable thing to me is the degeneration of both films. Uh, we do not, America no longer makes movies that have dialogue. Everything is a, com a, a comic book. Um, and, and the other thing, I was dubbed the godfather of reality television by the brightest critic in America, uh, Gary Deeb, uh, the Chicago Tribune, who once said, television is the only business in America where competition does not improve the product. And the reason he called me the godfather because real people became the highest rated show in the history of television. It had a social impact. I mean, we got it got the the Vietnam Memorial Wall built in Washington D.C. Uh, we got a presidential citation for the Navajo Code Talkers. We were the first to do the story of the Tuskegee Airmen, and we got the Missing Children's Act passed for John Walsh. That's the power of the show. We used to get twenty thousand pieces of mail a week, and and the great story of the show, its birth and its greedy death is in the book, monumental reading. But in any event, in that day, in reality television then, you had to have some talent, you had to have some intelligence and a personality. So I take bows and credits and kudos for creating real people that had all of that. But if you had those talents and intelligence and personality today, you could never be hired on reality television. There is not one person in reality television who reflects any of that. As a matter of fact, the only thing that you have to have now to be a star in reality television is an absence of shame. Yeah, you know? Well, okay, well, let me, let me ask you, maybe this is on more of a personal level. How important is it to keep our values and morals and hold powerful figures responsible for doing the same? Well, you know, I can only speak for myself, Angel. And the reason that I keep going, because if I stop, I'll die. If I am not mentally active and I'm, a, I'm not physically active, I'm over with. You know, I'm 86 years of age. I hit bucket of balls every day. I play golf. I walk the course when 40-year-olds are riding in carts and drinking beer because that's just the way I am built. I have no control over that. And, you know... One of the things that keeps me young, and people ask me all the time, is rage. And, and, and the reason is there is so much to be angry at. Now, I cannot do anything about the things that I am angry at, ex except I put together YouTubes that are funny or satirical, or I write a piece about it. That's how I do it. I just get it out of my system, and fortunately, I have thousands of people who like what it is that I'm that I do. But you know, I gotta I, say, and I think I said this before to you that it's rage only because, for me, only because I have so much to love. You know, it makes you know, me angry because I love so much. But. I must tell you, that is the most important thing that you can say. Uh, I mentioned to you the other day a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl who was in Auschwitz and he saw healthy people die and 
sick people live because healthy people had nothing to get up for. They wouldn't get up. Sick people, even though we were in terrible surroundings, wanted to get up and do something they could stay. Victor Frankl, being a psychiatrist, loved what he was doing because he had all these people to study. And he said, the happiest people in the world are those people who look forward to getting up the next day to either do something they love or to be with somebody they love. And in my case, I only had my work to love. I did not have a family. I had deleted my brother and my sister and everybody. I was going through this universe by myself. But knowing that, that I was, you know, the gods give you a life. They do not give you a purpose. Only you can give you a purpose. And my purpose was to be a storyteller. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. How can they get a copy of this amazing book? Uh, if you go if you go to my site, www.johnbarbersworld.com, not only can you get a uh, look at the first Garrison Tapes award-winning for nothing, you will have find a link to part two, which is only $2. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And then you can go to the link to the book, to uh, to Amazon, and uh, right now there are only five star reviews on Amazon, so I'm eternally grateful for that. For that, and that's in Canada, Australia, and the United States. And in about a month, I hope to be going across Canada, spending three weeks on a book tour. Do you also have a blog or a show that goes on? Yeah, I did have a very popular radio show, internet and net show. And there's a great clip in it. Uh, I, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm going to send you the clip when I get off the air. It's Frank Sinatra introducing me on the Tonight Show. So awesome. Can, but the reason I stopped doing it is because I want to focus on the book. As wonderful as real people was, as great as the documentaries are, the book is better. It's much more meaningful and much more lasting. And it's going to... It's just a phenomenal read, and I'm enormously proud of it. And I must tell you, Sarah, I don't know how you found out that I had the book, but the fact that you called and invited me on the show absolutely thrilled me because the last time I was on your show over a year ago and just chatted briefly about the garrison taste, hundreds and hundreds of people went to Amazon and watched it. Well, that's awesome. Well, I have the best listeners out there. I mean, they're, they're probably the most educated, the most, and not educated formally, so a lot of them are, but just educated in general, and uh, whether it's formal education or, or not. And they're just great, great, kind people who want to understand and learn. And so I'm just so thankful for them. But I want to tell you, I wanna, you have this um, really good two-minute clip about the book that I'm going to play at the end here just to kind of finish off the interview. But I want to thank you so much for coming by and sharing your memoir, memoir with us. Well, Sarah, what I would love to do once I start my trip to Canada, I would love to call you back and tell you some more absolutely wonderful, funny, fantastic, informative stories about television. I'd love that. That'd be great. I, I can't thank you enough, dear. So very, very, very much. And I, as soon as we get off, I'm going to send you uh, that little uh, clip. Uh, are you on Facebook? Yes. 
Oh, okay. So uh, are we friends on Messenger? I, I have no idea. Well, <laughs> I don't well, use Facebook as much as I should. Well, I'll find it and I'll Messenger it to you. And then I'm going to make a very, very quick phone call to you to thank you privately in person. Okay? Well, thank you so much. You know what? You have a great day and a great rest of the week. And thank you. Listen, love, thank you so much. And again, a very day after belated happy birthday. It was almost 40 years ago to the day when I accidentally got the first of four Real People specials on NBC. The first reality show, which I predicted would change the face of American television, and indeed it did. It got almost no rating, but more mail than the number one show at the time. Three years later, when I was fired for trying to tell Jim Garrison's story, it was number one, getting over 20,000 pieces of mail a week. Not only did it make people happy, it made a difference. It got the Navajo Code Talkers a presidential citation. Our story of a man in New Mexico who built his own Vietnam memorial for his son played a major role in getting the then-unwanted memorial wall built in Washington, D.C. The story of the birth and greedy death of this one-of-a-kind show is just one of the scores and scores of equally amazing stories in Your Mother's Not a Virgin, accidentally published by Trine Day. Unlike any book, it has no chapter titles. Assembled like a series of newspaper columns, you can open it anywhere and read another great story. Each one helps tell this amazing Canadian rags to American riches tale. How does someone from a broken home, a dropout at 15, arrested numerous times, deported twice, broke at 29, end up creating the number one trend-setting American hit, becoming the private writer to America's most influential entertainer and the one chosen by Mr. Garrison to tell his story, and then handed his citizenship papers by John Tunney, all in a life unplanned, just a dream to be an American. If you're the least bit interested in show business, this is a must-read. If you're the least bit interested in the almost unrecognizable changes in our media, our culture, and politics, this is an entertaining, informative must-read. If you just love to read great stories, or more important, if, like most of us, you've had a tough going, but you keep on going, this book is for you. And it is you I hope to meet in my six-week book tour from here to Canada. Good luck to all of us.